Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello. And welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to various people about the five things that they would like to put into a time capsule. Now, there are going to be four things that they really cherish, and one that they would like to, well, literally bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest this week is Rufus Hound. Rufus has had an extraordinarily varied career. He was a very successful stand-up comedian for many years before working as a television presenter on such shows as Top of the Pops and the BBC's coverage of the Glastonbury Festival. He's a regular voice on BBC Radio 4 and, as an actor, his career has flourished in the theatre. He's performed in many of the biggest West End shows of the last decade for the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company. And in fact, when we chatted, he'd just finished working for the RSC in The Boy in the Dress by David Williams. Then we all went into lockdown. So our conversation was recorded over Zoom, where I asked Rufus for the five things he'd like to put into a time capsule. Hope you enjoy it. What have you thought of? Have you got anything for me? Well, I, I did consider making it properly esoteric and, you know, having them be kind of thoughts, really. But I think the point is that they're actual physical objects. So the, then the question is, what are the objects that I hold on to? I have sort of a weird relationship with objects. Actually, not that weird, I'm sure. This is almost certainly exactly how everybody else feels. The very opposite of weird. But I refuse to let them hold any great weight over me. Things are just things. They are not in and of themselves important. It, it often seems to me that the undoing of people is the things. Like, So I heard a story, I don't know if it's true, but that Ian McKellen lives on the banks of the Thames and the tide comes in and the tide goes out literally at the end of his little plot. And when the tide goes out, if you look in the silt and the soil, you will see uh, BAFTAs and Olivier's 
and they're all just smushed into the silt of the of, of the end of his garden of the banks of the Thames. Wow. And somebody said to him, what, what's all that about? And he said, if I keep them in the house, then every time I see them, I'm being told that my work is done, that well done, you've done it very well, there's your prize, now that's the end of you. Yeah. Whereas if I keep them out there, then I can just know that they're there and I don't need to see them and I can be reminded, yes, there have been a few things I've done well, but they will be forgotten. And so the point is to move forwards and to make new things. Mm. Now, whether that's true or not, whether somebody has just spun me a load of baloney, <laughs> the spirit of that story seems to me to be about right. That you, It's lovely to have recognition, and I think a huge part of being motivated to deliver brilliant work is actually to be recognised by your peers as being somebody who's very good at what they do. Mm. When you feel like you're rated by people that you rate, yeah, I don't think it really gets much better than that. No. So yes, what are these objects? Is really the point is I don't I, I don't really hold on to very many things because what's the point? But I have got into the habit of where possible holding on to the shoes of characters I've played on stage. <laughs> uh, there's something really funny about shoes that I've noticed a few times with theatre, and that is. When everyone goes for their first costume fitting, everyone comes back and they're a bit giddy. You know, often you're wearing something unusual. Um, and so, you, you know, you come back and uh, everybody's talking about, yes, well, you know, I'm in, I'm in these uh, trousers with these huge flares on and they're going to put glitter up. Them. I mean, it sounds mad, but I can't wait to, you know, <laughs> there's that. Yeah. Um, or more often than not, I say more often than not, quite often, people come back and they're like, oh my God, what is this I'm having to wear? I mean, I look an absolute sight. I'm sure it'll work on stage, but oh my God. Have you seen these shoes? Now, for whatever reason, if I've ever done a tour in my life where people have started out criticising the outfits, you can bet 200, you can bet your mortgage on the fact that by the end of a tour of anything longer than about three months, everybody will have bought a pair of shoes that is almost <laughs> identical to the pair of shoes they wear on stage. I don't know why it is. I don't know why it happens, but I noticed it a while ago and it happens every time. It's unbelievable. So uh, I think there's something about the connection either to the stage or how it, how it lets you move on stage or the feeling of the movement on stage and the leak that you get, certainly in theatre, where you're playing the same person over and over again into some facet or aspect of yourself. I don't know why it seems to manifest in shoes, but it does. So You think that eventually, because when you first put those shoes on, they're always incredibly uncomfortable. They just don't feel right, yeah. do they? But quickly, they're the perfect thing to put on. So, in fact, it's it's the comfort of the whole thing yeah. that you feel really at home in them. Yeah, I think that may well be it. Somebody... Um, uh, a, a female comedian a while ago said that she was working on some material that was why women love shoes. And it's because no matter how fat you get, your shoes normally always fit you. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no reason why that needs to necessarily be a particularly uh, feminine problem. But yeah, you know, I've, I've got all sorts of clothes that fit me on some occasions and more often than not don't. But, yeah. you know, a pair of shoes, regardless of all of that, especially over a long tour, uh, they're often not your problem and putting them on 
I don't know, there is something about putting them on and standing up where you just feel like, okay, yes, I know who I am now. I'm this person. It's very weird. You should choose this. I've never thought about this before, but actually now you're talking about it. I think about my cupboard upstairs with my shoes in it and realise that I have about five pairs of shoes that I've brought from shows. Right. It's never occurred to me that I'm collecting them. No. How weird. Yeah, look, so... Those are the shoes I wore on One Man, Two Governors. Oh, wow. And while I was in One Man, Two Governors, I bought that pair of shoes. <laughs> it's the same <laughs> pair. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> so um, I think that would be the first thing I would put in. It would be um, the uh, the various pairs of shoes that I have stolen at the end of productions. Oh, um, that's a lovely thing to put in. I have to say I have once, um, very excitedly... Uh, tried on a pair of boots for something, and inside it had a label, and it said Peter O'Toole. Wow. I know. It said RSC Peter O'Toole. And I thought, blimey, these boots have been around a long time for a start. (laughs) And also, now I'm going, I I can't believe it. Yeah. You wouldn't think I had the same size feet as Peter O'Toole. He was a tall man. No. Actually, the boots, they were too big for me, but I I wore them anyway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once you know you've got O'Till's boots, you think, no, no, they fit perfectly. That's exactly Yeah, these I'm are great. Like. These are great. Thank you very much. <laughs> God, I wish I'd kept them. I think the first time I was at the RSC, I didn't have uh, Peter O'Toole's boots, but I had one of your company members' mugs. <laughs> oh, I think really? you made mugs for everyone. And when I opened the cupboard, there was a picture of you <laughs> on a mug. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. Yeah, I did. It's a good. It's a good first night present. I would uh, recommend it. Thank you. Just yeah. making silly mugs for everyone because that's the one thing in a theatre there's never enough of. Yeah, I've done a few good opening night presents. If I basically, if I'm on good money, I'm not afraid to go a bit mad. No. Um, <laughs> but uh, if I'm not, then everyone's just getting a postcard. You know. <laughs> it was actually that's not entirely true. When I did present laughter in Chichester the staircase had been designed with this sort of art deco feature. And there's a line in present laughter uh, that my character has to say about, um, it's, it's something like Beryl Bainbridge. It's not Beryl Bainbridge. Oh no, it's going to drive me <laughs> no, mad. No. <laughs> uh, but basically the character goes on a rant about, he can't possibly work with this woman because she's terrible essentially. And then uh, on opening night, I was wondering what to do. And so I got, a guy who does proper, like, full Photoshop features for the Radio Times to mock up a headshot of this woman and then bought these really specific frames from Dunelm that were all gold on the outside but had the same, like, Art Deco features as our staircase. So everybody got an opening night present from this Beryl woman saying how much she was going to be in tonight and how much she was looking forward to it. <laughs> and it cost an absolute fortune. A fortune? But, yeah. Well, at, Chichester. At, Chichester. at Chichester. At Chichester. 500 quid a week. Exactly. <laughs> I, I probably spent two weeks' wages on... But the problem was once I'd thought of the joke, it pleased me so much that yeah. I couldn't not do it. Oh, you've got to do it. That's perfect. Yeah. Gary Essendine. Gary Essendine. What a That's great it, yeah. part. Oh, what a great part. Brilliant. It's slightly frustrating, isn't it, that uh, people are recently hailing the present laugh done in the West End as being the definitive performance since actually Coward did it himself. You know, 
it, it, slightly, it, it was slightly annoying. It was frustrating. I mean, I'm not, you know, I didn't see that production, frankly, because it hurt too much. Oh, it was shit. It was it. shit. <laughs> was it? Yeah, I didn't see it either, but I know it was shit. All oh, right, good. I'm just gonna, I'm just, yeah, come on. I'll tell you that. Come on. Um, thank you, mate. Um, well, Sean Foley directed ours, and we have a very similar understanding of how theatrical comedy sort of has to work. Mm. And what we both understood, having read the play, is that in 2016, 17, maybe somewhere around there, the, 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 at its core, there's something rather troubling about that play <laughs> because yeah. in 2018, because it is about a bloke whose you know, best years are slightly behind him, but he still has a degree of celebrity that allows him to bed these young, impressionable women. Mm. And at the height of Me Too and all of those things, it's that's rather a, a tricky thing to mine comedy out of and, and have it be yeah. kind of taken lightly. So Sean's idea was... We're just not going to play into that. We're not going to let it become leaden or, 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 or reflecting on that. We are just going to play the entire thing for the jokes. There are mm. oodles of brilliant jokes in this, and we're just going to play joke to joke to joke and have the whole thing build up so that it's almost a bedroom farce by the end. Yeah. It was like, lovely, mate. I'm totally up for that. But then for them to do it at the old Vic and to gender flip the relationship so that the implication was that deep down Gary was gay. It was just like, it, it just made me feel a bit like, oh, well, I mean, if you want to get all smart about it, <laughs> sure. Oh, we could yeah. have done that. We could have oh, done that. Anyone could do that, the sort of deep, <laughs> underpin, psychologically resonant and truthful. Any moron can do that. You want to try running around and making it actually funny. That's, your, that's a real skill. Yeah. Try going for the laughs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Furious brilliant. about the whole thing I was. I only want a fucking Olivier for it, the bastard. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. Well, hopefully you'll go and visit Ian McKellen and have it <laughs> yeah. in the river. Chuck it in the stone. Yeah, right. Too good for uh, it. Brilliant. <laughs> all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your theatrical shoes. Yes. And uh, that's the first thing we've got in into the time capsule. And uh, should I polish them up or, or no? Leave them as they were? Oh, no. I think it's they've got to show the scars. Okay. There'd be nothing to them if, uh, if, if it was all polished out. It'd be awful. Yeah, the, the scars are memories. That's it. Yeah. They did as much work as I did. So, <laughs> you know, I've moved on. I'm not, I'm not still wearing the shows that I wore those things in but they still are. So, uh, yeah. yeah. All right, lovely. Okay, so what's the next thing you want to put in the time capsule? Um, I'm going to put in the box set of The Muppet Show. Really? Yeah. Um, I grew up on The Muppets. Um, we had one of the first video recorders, like home VCRs, when I was growing up. My dad would video The Muppet Show and then I would watch like the same six episodes on a loop. You know, these days, everything's on demand. My kids can get anything they want to watch at any moment, anywhere in the world, any time of night and day. But back then, this one video of The Muppet Show was my everything. And I, I've reflected on this a lot in recent years, but I think it may just be that it was The Muppets that sort of told me everything that I wanted to be from that point onwards. Now, I'm not yeah. really suggesting that that is a <laughs> thing. <laughs> I want to be green. I want to be green. <laughs> well, so there's, so as an adult, I've rewatched them, you know, a fair bit. Sadly, my favourite episode of The Muppets um, has never been reissued. It's in series four. So 
for anyone who doesn't know, the, the, the Muppets was filmed in the UK. And so big American stars would be flown over to work on it. Mm. Um, but it was all made in um, uh, Pinewood. Right. But occasionally you'll get British stars on the Muppets. And it's because somebody fell ill, somebody couldn't make the flight or whatever. So there's an amazing episode of The Muppet Show starring Bruce Forsyth. And it's one of the best episodes. He totally gets it. He totally mm. understands exactly what's being done, has all the fun with it. If you think that's a man who's hosted the Generation Game, that whole thing of like, no, stop it, hey, what are you, hey? Like, yeah. he, him and the Muppets is just absolute heaven. He's phenomenal in it. The, my favourite thing ever that Bruce Forsyth ever did in his whole life. I just Can you not get that? Is that the one you can't get? You can get that one. Ah, right. I think I know the one you can't get then. Yes, yeah, I think you may okay. well do. Um, Richard Pryor set himself on fire with his crack pipe <laughs> and was due to be on the Muppets that weekend and missed his flight and it was too late for them to book a get hold of anyone else. Anyone. And they turned round to one of the young writers in the room mm-hmm. and said, Chris, you're very funny. Why don't you do it? And so it was that the completely unknown Chris Langham ends up on The Muppet Show. Astonishing. And that episode is my favourite episode of The Muppet Show. Really? Because normally when the stars come in, the stars have got a status and then the Muppets are all sort of frantically filling in underneath them. But the joke on the Chris Langham one is that all of the Muppets believe themselves to be above him because he's really just a messenger boy. (laughs) He has less status than Muppets. (laughs) <laughs> and and so everything he's required to do, he just comes at from such a low place. And it's so mad. He's sort of madder than the Muppets, that the, that the Muppets all become quite grown up as a result. And then he's left at the other end of it. Mm. And he does this owl impression that still cracks me up to this day. Yeah. And, and, and the finale, oh my God. For, you know, as all these things do contort, but the finale is him locked in a wardrobe, having to then go and sing the final song, which he's not qualified to do, where he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt whilst locked inside this wardrobe that has a cowboy hat on it to sing a a song called I Love You, Hawaiian Cowboy. And then halfway (laughs) through it, genuinely about a ton of monkey nuts just start pouring into this wardrobe. So they're filling up the wardrobe and falling all around him. Well, he has got his face pressed up to a hole he's cut in the back of a wardrobe, surrounded by penguins, singing Hawaiian. And, like, I don't know how anybody gets to a point of making anything where that has been allowed to exist. There are so <laughs> do you, do you many... Think, do you think that possibly Chris wrote that and thought, this will be really funny when Richard Pryor... <laughs> Oh, I hope so. God, I hope so. <laughs> it just, even thinking about that fills me with joy. Yeah. Everything about it is so odd and shouldn't work and is slightly kind of terrible in a way, but actually is in my DNA as being something beyond wonderful. Yeah. I just love it. So it's a shame that you can't get it. And obviously you can see why a big corporation like Disney are, you know, now at a point where they're shaky about 
you know, if, if they're viewed as seeing that, you know, being seen as the house of mouse and, mm-hmm. and, and their relationship with young consumers, you know, why they get slightly anxious about people who've been had up for crimes against those people. So yeah, you can understand why it's unlikely to ever really see the light of day again, but yeah, it's I, a very difficult moral argument, isn't it? Because how far back in history do we go and who do we, judge in that way oh. you know like so do you not listen to Mahler because of hitler's association do you not yeah those or michael jackson you know yes yeah. that's it so our very jolly light-hearted conversation <laughs> yes took, took a nice turn do you know they're talking about bruce forsyth on the muppets oh yeah um have you ever looked up on youtube him and norman wisdom at the london palladium no there was a night when uh, I think there was a strike or something, or there was, and people couldn't get to the theatre. And basically, Bruce Forsyth and Norman Wisdom did the whole of Sunday Night at the London Palladium and did just the two of them. Good God. Look it up, look it up. It's really extraordinary. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I look forward to that. Thank you. That's all right. Good. All right. Well, we're going to take yeah, the, the entire box set of The Muppets, I think. Yes. Put that into the time capsule. That would be great. I think um, the point I I would always offer anybody who is unsure about the Muppets is this, is that the moral of basically every Disney story is we're all the same, right? People, we're all the same. So be kind to each other. Mm. Whereas Jim Henson's philosophy that underpins everything the Muppets do is we're all different. So be kind to each other. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I think that, that that, to me, is the winning philosophy. Is, yes, all right, you know, we're, we're all made of the same uh, miraculously um, motivated meat. But actually who we are and what we're about and the things that motivate us are all different enough that it's easy for us all to feel that we're somewhat alone. Mm. Whereas I think that the understanding that we're all different means that you can recognise that that makes you the same as everyone. <laughs> yeah. Far more easily than just being told, hey, we're all the same. You think, well, that's not, no, I'm I'm really not the same as lots of people I've met. <laughs> no. So uh, it, it's basically why when you see the Muppets, you know, it's a frog and a pig and a monster and a bear And there is something that brings all of them together and they want to work together and they want to produce something great. Yeah. But they're all very different. And so they have to make allowances for one another's difference. Um, There are two shows that philosophically hearten me or or that I find spiritually fulfilling. Uh, One is The Muppets and the other is uh, the recent NBC sitcom The Good Place, written by Mike Schur. So if you haven't seen The Good Place, do you know anything about it at all? No, I don't, no. Okay, don't, do me a favour, don't Google it. Right. Okay? Just start watching. It's on Netflix. Yeah. I'm going to say one of the things that you should never say to anyone, which is just get to the end of the first season, right? <laughs> <laughs> People used to say this to me with The Wire. I'd be like, I've watched all of season one of The Wire. They're like, honestly, just get to season three. It's so good. It's like, hang on a second. I have to watch 48 hours of television <laughs> to get to the before it gets, gets any good. good. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. But um, the good place, I think, is good from moment one. Mm. It, it's essentially about ethical philosophy, but at its core, it's about whether or not people in that show are prepared to do the work. 
And the Muppet show is people putting on, or, you know, Muppets, creatures, beings, putting on a show. So I think there is something that I, I really respond to in the idea of your life and your work being the same thing and that you're motivated and that there's drive towards actually manufacturing something at the end of it. I yeah. don't do very well with just living. I do very well with working um, because I know, I, I know where working is going. I know what the end result of that is meant to be. Whereas the living is like, but you know, we got up, washed ourselves, uh, <laughs> dressed, uh, you know, ate, and then went to bed yesterday. Why do we have to do that again today? <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, that's going to have an end. The living, you sort of go, well, it's going to, it might be today. Yeah. You know, yeah. But I, I don't need to perfect it. No. Because it's, it's going to constantly change and then it's going to end. Yes. Well, I think as well, at the end of life, there's no big kind of round of applause or like moment where people go, yes, well, well done, you've you smashed That's that. It. Or... Yeah, you go, you got the you got the perfect day right at the end there. That's <laughs> one of, it's it's one of my uh, one of my favourite jokes is uh, I like to live life as if every day is my last. I like falling in and out of a coma with my family around me weeping. <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. All right, so the Muppets definitely that's going in. We should move on to your third item. Sorry to interrupt, but we're going to take a short break here for some ads to help to pay for this podcast. We'll be back in a minute. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back to My Time Capsule with my guest, Rufus Hound. Let's find out what his third item is. Um, it's a chair that I made. You made a chair? I made a chair. Would you like to see it? I would like to see it. Oh, my word. So. That's brilliant. When did you make this? I made this in the woods of Wiltshire. So it's a, it's a traditional sort of 
kitchen chair, but with a yeah. with a wicker wicker seat. So that's woven Danish cord, which is sort of like a paper string. Um, but this brilliant. This started as a tree, so and you can see it's it's quite rough, isn't it? The uh, the, yeah. the the cutting of it and all the the wood is left. I left yeah. the bark on the front. You've got the knots. Yeah, and um, where little weevils and things got into the bark on the back, I left all that on. But yeah, this was a this was literally a piece of tree that um, that I got taught over five days how to split into sticks and then bits to dry and how to shave it all down and uh, wow. and at the end of it had an actual chair that is How brilliant surprisingly comfortable to sit on <laughs> so what brought you there what took you to that place to work on that stuff well there's an actor called Nick Offerman who was in Parks and Recreation played Ron Swanson and he's also a writer uh, and I've I've read the three books that he's written but he's also a, a woodworker and actually when he'd he'd been a kind of figure around the Chicago theater scene uh, and and they had their own theatre company, and he he was a trained actor, but wasn't necessarily a great actor. <laughs> but because he was quite handy and grown up on a farm and could you know put bits of wood together and make props and build sets and whatever, he kind of they would keep casting him, knowing that he'd then do all of the the actual <laughs> donkey work that needed doing. And having done that for a while, was then convinced to move to LA. Moved to LA without any. Um, great plan uh, or, or or any connections to working in LA and had to support himself. So then um, started woodworking as a way of earning a living whilst going to auditions for various things that he knew he wasn't going to get. Hmm. And at some point he built a, a wooden deck for a producer. And this producer had really kind of a high requirement of what he wanted out of this deck. So he... On that day, Nick Offerman was auditioning for something. So he goes to this audition and all he's thinking about is this deck. And he looked around this room and there were a couple of like famous actors that were up for the same part. It was an advertisement. And these famous actors who hadn't worked in a long time were up for the same part in this advertisement that he was. Yeah. And he had this weird moment where he was like, oh, hang on a second. These were guys that I grew up thinking were the absolute be all and end all. And they're at the same place I'm at. Mm. And here I am sat thinking, I've got this deck to build. And actually, I'm far more interested in building this deck than I am going up for a job that should be beneath people who supposedly have made it. Oh, hang on, I'm doing all of this wrong. It isn't just about getting any old job. It's about doing work that I actually want to do and that I feel engaged by. Yeah. And for as long as I can make a living at woodwork, I think I'm only going to audition for things that I, I really actually want. Mm. And once he'd had that thought, everything changed because <laughs> he would go to auditions not feeling like, please, please, you know, I could really do with the gig and yeah. find me something to do. He would just go in and think to himself, well, okay, this is fine because I actually have a lot of work on at the moment and it would getting this job would actually be kind of a pain in the ass to have to reorganise all the woodwork that I have to do around the <laughs> filming of this. It completely puts you in charge. Yeah, totally. So he basically now has this huge um, philosophy of, you know, making and what it is to be able to make things and woodwork specifically, but it doesn't have to be woodwork, it can be anything. 
And I, I just found everything he wrote about what matters to you and how you manifest what matters to you mm. to be incredibly insightful, incredibly helpful. And I mean, he writes very well. He is very funny. But I, I, at a time where I felt I was dangling a bit, his writing really helped me. And, I, and I'd already done a couple of woodworking courses before reading any of his stuff. But when I made that chair, I, um, I went and lived in the woods for five days and we cooked on a fire and, uh, and all of that. So this whole chair was a, literally a tree trunk, <laughs> uh, a bit of ash. I think we used two tree trunks to make four chairs. And there's no glue, no screws, no anything. No. It's green woodworking. It's how they would have built stuff, you know. Yeah. In medieval times. So you put it in and it expands. Yeah, well, and you... And then becomes tighter and tighter. Yeah, you... So some of the holes that you make, you just leave so that the green wood still got quite a lot of moisture in. And then some of the finer things, like the... Um, the, the struts that go uh, across, you put them in a little cupboard near the fire, like an oven, essentially. And then they stay doing that overnight. And then the next day, when you put the pieces that are dried into the wet holes, mm. the moisture from the holes leaks into the dry wood. So they expand slightly, the hole contracts slightly. And those two sides, from the moment you've uh, used big vices to clamp them together, the, the wood does a thing called screaming as it's like just smushing together. And once the wood stops <laughs> screaming, you can literally take two bits of wood, hang it over a temple and then do pull-ups on it. It just will not come apart. Amazing. And that's technology that's, you know, thousands of years old. And the only reason we don't still do that is because it's time-consuming, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. It's the difference between craft and taking pride in something and, you know, there being love in it. And it just being a product that can be sold. Yeah. Oh, I'm very tempted. I'd love to have a go at this. Mate, you would love it. I think I would. I, yeah. I, I couldn't tell anybody alive wouldn't love it. It's so great. No. Even just being in the woods for a week is great, let alone actually then making stuff and eating a largely vegan diet, you'll be surprised to hear. <laughs> yeah. But I did make a, a magazine rack at school. What is the point of that? <laughs> I mean, you say that. But and I have to say, I know, I have to say all the time I was making it, I was thinking, what am I making this for? Yeah. So obviously I was not motivated. No, that's the difference, isn't it? You know, a 13-year-old with a magazine rack isn't anything. But if they just said build a skateboard ramp or whatever, you know, yeah. suddenly it's got a different complexion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you know that attitude? Uh, do you know the actress Romola Gurry? She told me that, that uh, I, I said, how is it you're so good at getting these jobs, and, apart from being a great actress? And she said that she has always basically gone to an audition feeling that she was auditioning the people in the room. Right. So she basically interviewed the director. <laughs> so as a result, it always puts her in the position of power. Yeah. She's the one in charge. Yeah. And a fantastic actress, so maybe that's just it. That probably doesn't hurt, does it? No. Do you know Andy Nyman? Yeah, I do, I do know. Um, Andy Nyman wrote a book about acting, and the brilliant thing he says about auditions is, what you have to remember is the producer and the director have a problem, which is they're trying to put on this story, and currently they don't have anyone who can fill this part or, or, or this number of parts. So when you go into that audition, you're basically there saying, 
don't worry, everyone, calm down. <laughs> the solution to your problem is me. And I'm <laughs> yeah. going to, uh, that thing that you're trying to make happen, don't worry, I'm here, I can make it happen. And if you go into that room thinking about, okay, I'm going to fix your problem for you, yeah. then immediately you're standing shoulder to shoulder facing in the same direction rather than peering directly across at one another in a kind of face down. Yeah, very good. So you say, what is it you want? What do you, what do you want? Because yeah. actually, if you tell me what you want, I can almost certainly do it. Yes, that's it. And that's yeah. why I absolutely hate self-tapes. Because, oh, so do I. Because yeah. I, I, I'm here to find out from you what you need this thing to be. Do you want me to do one take as well? Yeah. That's it. You know, whereas I love going to an audition and doing it and then a director saying, yeah, try it a bit more and whatever. And you, you do it again. You go, oh, great. Yeah. And then so you're immediately showing that you're adaptable, you can yeah. be worked with and that you've got ideas. Yeah. Whereas if you just say, this is the one idea I'm sending you. Yeah. Do you like it? And if they go, no, I don't like it. You go, well, then don't give me the part. But I do have lots of others. Unfortunately, I can't show you on a tape. No. Um, not only that as well, but that especially if you've done a lot of theatre, you're very aware that your instincts are to push slightly bigger <laughs> than if you're, if you're auditioning for something film or TV where you want to be quite still and, and you know, do the storytelling in a much more minimal fashion. So then when you do a self-tape, it's like, wh- whatever I said off, I'm like, whatever take I moved in least. <laughs> which <laughs> that's the one. Where my head that's isn't shaking around, that's the one I'm sending. So, <laughs> so, so never mind making active choices in in how I feel this character should be. Yes. I'm actually just sending you the one where I feel like I'm doing the absolute least <laughs> I in, in the belief that that's what you will respond to most. Yeah, yeah, I know. I did a self-tape <laughs> in France. I was on holiday and my agent asked me to do a self-tape. And so I had no props, nothing, just my phone. I set it up and my wife stood by me, bless her, and read the other lines in. Really bored. Yeah. Really uninterested. She'd know I don't want to do acting. So yeah. I'm just going to say these bloody things. And at one point in the script, it said, he picks up a cigar and smells it. So I didn't have a cigar. And uh, I thought, oh, well, I suppose I better mime it. So I picked up the cigar and went, hmm. <laughs> And of course, on the screen, it looked basically like I was smelling my dirty fingers <laughs> as if I'd stuck them up my arse or yeah. something again. Yeah. Mm. My son made my son made a, a little, what they got a gif of it, a little, little thing. <laughs> just, <laughs> God, I look like an idiot. Yeah. And I am. All right, we shall put that beautiful chair. There's something for you to sit down and, and look at your shoes in while you're watching the Muppets. While I'm watching the Muppets. While you're watching the Muppets. So that's three things. We've got one thing more that you're pleased to take with you and one that you're happy to get rid of, really. You're going to bury in a little corner. Um, well, I'll, I'll do the thing that I, I would still love to take with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is um, my Sundonku. And I'm, I'm offering you this simply so that I can uh, more widely publicise the idea of a tsundonku. Because <laughs> <laughs> tsundonku means, uh, is a Japanese word that means the pile of books that grows ever larger that you know you are never going to read. Ah, is it's, that what it is? It specifically relates to the books 
where you keep buying, that you already are aware that there is this pile of books that you want to read and that you tell yourself, I will read, but that rather than ever reading anything from it, you just buy more books and add to it to make it even more <laughs> unassailable. So what's in your pile? What's in? So your- having been away uh, from home in Stratford-upon-Avon for almost the last year, this bookshelf is now just completely smushed with too many books. So there's two books by Becky Chambers. Her first book um, was called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. Uh-huh. And essentially, she's a, um, a, a female science fiction writer. And her science fiction is brilliant in that it couldn't be more human. Uh, we're actually kind of quite similar to the Muppets. <laughs> in the, an incredible cast of very unusual characters who are from different alien races and are set up in all different ways. Mm. And yet the thing that makes them super alien, unsurprisingly, is the thing that makes them most human. So yes. uh, I hadn't read this uh, record of a space-born few. The, the Long Way to a, 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 a Small Angry Planet um, then had a sequel, uh, which was uh, a closed and common orbit. And you'd think it would just continue with the adventure that she'd started in the first one. And instead, it's not. It's about AI. Um, it's still with <laughs> some of the characters. But it's brilliant. So it's just, Becky Chambers has this sort of abstract way of getting to a story. Um, reminds me very much of um, David Mitchell, if you've ever read Cloud Atlas. Mm. You kind of go... Are these stories actually in any way related? Or oh, The Bone Clocks is another one of his. Uh, are these stories actually related? And then it's just something in the process of reading it where tonally it begins just to all click together. Uh, it's not exactly the same, but very similar. Becky Chambers. And then um, I talked about The Good Place. Uh, it's about ethical philosophy. Uh, that book, What We Owe Each Other by T.M. Scanlon, plays an enormous part in it. The odds of my ever reading this are zero. Um, I would love to read it. It will never happen. Look, tiny, tiny writing in that. Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot of writing. That's a lot of reading, isn't it? It's a lot of reading. Um, So I I would love to read that. There's uh, Ben Folds' Dreams About Lightning Bugs, which is his sort of like quasi-autobiography. And then uh, that's just the ones that are smushed in that corner. Um, there's about four other pockets of them. The vor- uh, But you know what's going to happen? You're going to take this in there with you, and uh, and then you'll be sitting on your chair. Yeah. And you'll think, right? I'll read it. No, I'll watch the Muppets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it, and it'll just stay there. I think it's a nice idea to have those books there as a reminder of all the things that you know you hoped to do. Yeah. Yeah, I've I also I've got a I've got a friend. I'm going to uh, recommend this book to you. I've got a friend called Dan Rhodes, who um, who wrote a book which is a hundred short stories about love, each of them a hundred words long. Oh wow! And so that is the sort of book that you would get through in no time. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, uh, he's now a post. He's now, he won all sorts of awards, but he he still writes. But he's a he's a postman, lives in Buxton, and he's very happy. Oh, good on him. Mm. Uh, I'm immediately looking. Hang on. Is it Anthropology 101 True Love Stories? That's it, yeah. Oh, it's it's 15 quid on eBay. Is it? So it's rare. Yeah. Ah, good. I've got a signed copy. Right, that might be going up. <laughs> <laughs> well, hang on, another one's just come up as being listed. Hang on. Uh, 
M. <laughs> Hang on a minute. S for 50 the quid. <laughs> 50 quid. What's he <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, so it's that thing of Stuart Lee talking about um, looking up things with himself in them yeah. and never allowing never allowing the price to fall below £3.49. Yeah. Because if it ever gets to £3.50, he buys it and then sells it after his act. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went to see I went to see him on that tour, mm. and one of the DVDs being smashed around the stage was mine. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, no, fair enough." He has this weird reflex, which is that anybody who publicly praises him and says they really like him, if if they've had any kind of success at all, he just goes after them. Yeah. So James Corden, when he was when James Corden was really on the ascent in America was regularly asked who his favourite stand-up comedian was. And James Corden is in America on these huge yeah. press promo tours going, Stuart Lee is just the funniest man in the world. And then Stuart Lee goes out of his way to do like a 20-minute routine about how much he hates James Corden. <laughs> and, and that is part of what keeps Stuart Lee being Stuart Lee. But Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's why he's Stuart Lee, because you just can't believe that he has the nerve to keep going down those, those tracks. You know, that sort of... You know, will no, you can't go there. You can't. He does. He always yeah. does. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think he's fantastic. He's now going to come after me. No, I'm not famous enough. That's good. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> no, we must publicly say how much we both hate him, and then we yeah, he's say, rubbish. That's Stuart Lee. Rubbish. rubbish. Yeah. yeah. All right. Fantastic. So I've got a big pile of books in there for you, and we've got one more thing. This is something that you really would like to bury. Yeah. Um. I think when you work in theatre specifically, and when you work with actors that you're excited to work with, that you've enjoyed on other things, and then the process of working with them teaches you that they're actually rather thorny or difficult or self-serving, or just aren't there to play nicely with others, really. Yeah. That feels like a real betrayal, because to have to turn up and do eight shows a week and really bang it out, is it, it's it's not just oh I don't really like that person it's it, it actually kind of is more wounding than that <laughs> because you have to invest some part of yourself in making it good mm. and for them to be not in the same place or, or 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 to be on the take of that of what you're putting in that it's all one way traffic like. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if, in fact, what you love about doing that, that job is the collaborative nature of it, yeah. that you, you love that as a team, as a group of people. It's interesting because you've been a stand-up comedian, so you've exactly done that say, individual yeah. thing. And then when you go into going, doing theatre, it's a teamwork thing. Yeah, totally. Um, it's, it's actually often comes out in, in, in being on stage with people who are getting laughs. So it, I, I'm normally the one on stage thinking, listen, anyone can get a laugh. I spent 10 years getting laughs. I'm not worried about laughs. Just face that way, pull a face, do a silly voice. You'll get a laugh. Anyone can get a laugh. Yeah. Are we getting the right laugh? Are we getting the right laugh in the right place? That's the craft of this. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, it's the difference between, you know, eating your five a day and just eating a chocolate bar is mm. you can get the laugh. but Actually, it's about the quality of that. And especially theatrically, the only way normally, because you're you know, quite rarely on stage on your own getting laughs, otherwise it does just feel like stand-up, 
but it's about there being an understanding amongst people working together and, and the rhythm of that and, and how to set it up. All of those little things about, you know, where is one person looking when one person says their line so that when they turn around, they're registering it. And then mm. that registering doesn't happen by looking out to the audience and then registering it. It happens while you're looking at the person, you register it, and then you cheat your face out so people can see it. But if you cheat yeah. your face out first and then register it, now you're just mugging at the audience. Yeah. And it doesn't feel real and it feels cheap. And all of those million of tiny little gestures will be the difference between this feeling like of enormous quality and incredibly satisfying mm. or like it's bad panto. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's a, an amazing feeling when you get that, when it ah. goes right like that. And the joy, like you say, it's not just about me getting laughs. The joy of setting up someone's laugh, and, and you definitely have to. You have to move out of the way to let it happen. And you mustn't, you can obstruct it very easily on stage just by moving or just by not looking at the person. Yeah. You can destroy their laugh. Yeah. Because you make the audience look somewhere else. Yeah. That thing that they always talk about of upstaging people, yeah. you know, it's not necessarily that you can upstage people by doing nothing. Yeah. Oh, you can be well downstage of somebody and upstage them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so yes, I completely agree with you. I, I, it is really frustrating going into a project mm. and then one person in it is only really concerned about their performance. Yeah. It's a very it weird thing, isn't it? No, it doesn't make any sense, no. It doesn't make it, it is literally like being on a football team and saying, right, so I'm just going to go up and stand next to the goal. And I, what all I need for everybody else to do is just whatever it is you're doing, just get me the ball. Mm. You think, well, that's not being part of a football team. That's just demanding that people laud you for, for what? For, and not even being able to or willing to put in the effort. Mm. It would just make no sense at all. And yet, somehow, People do see that as being a, 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 a viable way of doing, you know, the job of telling stories in theatre. So, it, yeah, I find it, I, I find it sort of staggering. And, and actually, weirdly, my experience of it has been almost all people over 50. <laughs> that you kind of think, like, those people who have actually reached some point in their career where they're known you think, okay, great, you know, so share it out, right? And we're, aren't we all lucky to be working together? Yeah. And actually, the ones that are always the biggest nightmares appear to, 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 to be the people who are actually rather established. I saw you in The Provoked Wife up at uh, Stratford. Yeah. But I remember thinking, that's a difficult part, because that is really a part that keeps giving to everyone else. Constant, wasn't it? Yeah. So he is the constant in the play. And he's the person who is reasonable and nice and everything. And all the laughs, in a way, are coming elsewhere, you know. Yeah. But then, of course, you have that lovely speech towards the end, where, in fact, it's the most moving moment of the play, I thought. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's been one of the joys of, uh, of, of my professional life over the last year, uh, is I played Sancho Panza uh, in, uh, at the Garrick, which we had done at the RSC. And that really was a mix of acting and stand-up in lots of ways. So, you know, very much my job to get laughs. Mm. But then The Provoked Wife, where you realise, actually, this is the Juve lead part. And few things actually put my back up more 
when I go and see those shows is when the person who is clearly meant to be the least interesting person on stage is doing everything they can to sort of yeah. bubble it up. <laughs> no, no, stop, 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 stop. Your job is to stand there and let the interesting people be interesting and you do as little as possible. If you, as you say, if you didn't play the role correctly, you would be destroying their performances. Quite so. So again, it is a collaborative thing. It's a, like you say, teamwork, everything going together. And when it's done beautifully, then we all end up throwing our BAFTAs into the river, which is yeah. perfect. <laughs> I completely yeah. agree with you. That's a very frustrating thing to have to deal with as an actor. And I'm happy to see it go into the time capsule. Good. Rufus, it's really gorgeous to talk to you. It's lovely to see you. Uh, keep well. Yeah. And thank too. you so much for being on my time capsule with me. Well, thank you for having me. Until next time. <laughs> hey! <laughs> hey! You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Rufus Hound. This programme was produced and edited by John Fenton-Stevens, and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. If you've enjoyed this program, why not subscribe on Acast or wherever you prefer to get your podcasts from? It's easy. Just get your phone out and click subscribe. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at MyTCPod, where you'll find extra content and behind-the-scenes photos. Ooh. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Fenton Stevens. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. Thank you for listening and, hopefully, subscribing. I hope you can join me again next time. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 